gotta tell somebody. This is the best thing I've ever seen. That. Let's talk about that. Let's you talk need about this. That. Listen to this. Memorable and exciting. Well, then be less boring. I'm gonna tell everyone. Wait here. Quite a remarkable big daddy. Remarkable. Remarkable. Welcome to Remarkable, a podcast for B2B marketers that deconstructs the most iconic moments in film, television, pop culture, and advertising for a single purpose, to give you, the B2B marketer, the same storytelling techniques that the pros use. In each episode, you will learn techniques from Hollywood, Pixar, Marvel, and beyond, from Spielberg's hands to yours, bringing remarkable content ideas to you every single week. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. This is Remarkable. This week, we're going to be talking about B2B marketing lessons from Acapulco with a special guest, head of America's Marketing Riverbed. Uncle Maximo! I've decided to tell you my life story. It all starts in Acapulco. This was the deciding moment in my life. For a poor kid from the streets of Acapulco, the way to a better life was a job at Las Colinas, the most glamorous resort of all. Christina, how are you? Good, how are you doing? Thanks for having me. Excited to have you on the show. We're going to chat Acapulco. We're going to chat marketing content, everything in between. Let's get into it. Why did you pick Acapulco today? Yeah, so before we get into it, I do want to acknowledge that the the actual city of Acapulco just got hit by a pretty bad hurricane a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, our thoughts are with them. But this show, Acapulco, is fictional. It's just a very funny, silly, optimistic show. And I just thought it was, uh, you know, a, a great way to talk about uh, content and marketing. And what a silly, fun, interesting show it is. And we're going to get into that a bunch. But before we do, tell us about what you do at Riverbed. Yeah, so I'm the head of America's Marketing. So essentially, my team is very aligned with the sales team in the Americas. We help them with everything, demand generation, ABM, content campaigns, with the goal of generating pipeline and revenue. And I should say that also you're a Demand-based top 20 marketer for 2023, award-winning marketer, I should say. Sorry, the way you said that word, it was beautiful. And obviously you don't necessarily run you know, content per se, but content is part of obviously demand, and we're going to get into all that stuff later in the episode. Meredith, what the heck is Acapulco? As Christina mentioned, Acapulco is this TV show about this 20-something guy, a Mexican guy named Maximo. That is Meredith O'Neill, our amazing producer extraordinaire. Who's been dreaming since he was little about um, working at a luxury resort close to where he lives in Acapulco, and it's called Las Colinas. Welcome to the famous and infamous Las Colinas Resort. But he finally gets hired, and then he finds out that working there is so much more complicated than he expected. His new coworkers are pretty mean. They refuse to show him the ropes. The guests are super demanding and really challenge the ethics that he grew up with. So I just started filet mignon to a dog. 
Is that normal here? And it creates challenges at home too. My mother was afraid that we sort of would change me. And what's really interesting is the story is told in flashbacks by an older version of Maximo, who you find out ha has been very successful in his career. I believe he's a billionaire. We find him living in this beautiful seaside house. And he's looking back on his beginnings and telling his nephew about how he got to be successful. Right now, I'm a pool boy. But before you know it, I'll be the manager. And one day, I'm going to own this place. So it's very much a rags to riches story. But because it's his memory that is the sort of like the storytelling, I find that it's a really cool storytelling technique in that he's like embellishing parts of the story. And so you see the juxtaposition of like, what his life was really like versus the way he perceived it. And there's some like outlandish moments where it's clear his imagination has really like taken off with the story. In that moment, it was clear Julia was the one. I could tell just from the look in her eyes. You want to kiss me, don't you? Yes. But the show stars Eugenio Derbez as the mature Maximo Gallardo and young Maximo is played by Enrique Arizon. Maximo's best friend, Memo, who works at Las Colinas with him, is Fernando Carsa. Yeah. Guys, this is my amigo, Memo. My amigo. His boss, Don Pablo, is played by Damian Alcazar, and his love interest, Julia, is played by Camila Perez. It premiered in 2021, and two seasons are out now on Apple TV. A third is on the way, and it's been nominated for many awards, Critics' Choice Awards, and so on. But one of the awards I thought was really interesting, it's given by the Imahin Foundation Awards, or the Imahin Foundation, and they celebrate specifically meaningful portrayals of Latinos in the media. And it's Apple TV's first Spanish bilingual comedy, which I thought was really interesting. I had the best English teachers, um, Luke Skywalker, Indiana Jones, Danny Suko. I had pretty good English teachers too. Uh, Jane Austen, uh, Emily Bronte, Virginia Woolf. So I'm wondering, Christina, that said, like, when you think about marketing and you think about this show being both in English and Spanish, and lots of the characters speak both, what that makes you think about as far as language that you use in marketing? Yeah, so I'll say I'm originally from Spain, which you can probably tell by my accent. So I am also bilingual English-Spanish. And so that was one of the things that really resonated with me when I saw that it was, you know, this quote-unquote Latino show or, you know, portraying Latinos. So that was something that really resonated. And like you said, it's so important in marketing to know your customer's language, right? To use the language they're using to really speak the way they use sometimes especially in B2B, we tend to be like, you know, very buttoned up and like using fancy words. And hey, we're talking to humans. They're also humans. They're talking the same language, right? So yeah, again, just really understand your customers, know how they speak and use that same language with them. And that's, you know, like very similar to this show where, you know, I speak both languages. I see them in the show and it really resonates with me. So one of the things that struck me about the show is that, so Acapulco, the city has gone under... A, a very different sort of timeline from when um, the show was is portraying it in the 80s. I think it's like 1984 versus like what it is now. And obviously, like you said, at the, at the top of the show, they just had a horrible hurricane. So, you know, thoughts and prayers to, to everybody there. But what it was in the heyday, which is why it's such an interesting time to discuss it, was that it was like, a huge destination in the 80s. Acapulco in 1980 was the best place to be. Everyone from Hollywood was there and the parties were insane. The aesthetic was really unique and wonderful. And now it's very different, I think very aged. 
So it's it's not quite the same as as it was then. But I remember, you know, I was born in 86. So I remember growing up that like everyone talked about Acapulco and that it was very much like my parents' generation of people talked about this amazing city by the beach and all this stuff. And so it's it's a very cool thing there to choose this city, uh, which also has a great name, but to choose this period of time and all that. And it's really interesting that they chose to do that. And then from a storytelling technique, which we'll get into here in a little bit, to start with this person who has made it from the origins of Acapulco in this very like touristy sort of, you know, the height of a thing. And so you get a little bit of the period piece type stuff here, which I think is really cool and interesting without sort of digging like really deep into it, but you're getting a little bit of it, which I think is pretty cool. I don't know if, Christina, if you had any experiences with Acapulco in a similar way that I did, or you just heard about it, but like in people going there, but I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I grew up in Spain and even for people in Spain, like a lot of people would go on vacation to Acapulco when I was younger, because like you said, it was this huge destination. They had all these resorts. And yeah, I think in the show, it's very interesting how Maximo tells the story and now being a billionaire and, you know, supposedly living in the U.S. and, you know, a totally different life and, you know, story and everything, he still makes you feel like that was a great life and that was a great way of growing up. Instead of looking at it like, oh, you know, like we were so poor or we were, you know, at the mercy of these tourists or, you know, like something like that, it kind of you see the two different lives, you know, he extracts the best of each one. I thought that was a very interesting storytelling technique, like you said, because it they're so different, the two lives he's had, but he's telling you the story in a way that you enjoy it still. I can't believe I'm sitting here. I can't believe I'm sitting anywhere. My family just has the one chair. It's a very interesting juxtaposition of a different show that we covered on, on Remarkable, it's super popular in White Lotus, where it is delving into like, the very negative elements of tourism and toxicity and all of that stuff in a way that, you know, there are very funny humorous elements that they do as well, but it's a much darker comedy, whereas this is like the polar opposite. And I'm curious, Meredith, was that on purpose? Tell us about the making of Acapulco. Yeah, yeah, definitely on purpose. I mean, one of the things I was thinking to, Christina, when you're mentioning like the way he portrays life at home versus life in this luxury resort is he's very respectful of both. And one thing that made me think about it is in the first episode, he buys glasses for his mom who's losing her or having difficulty with her eyesight. And her mom's like, these cost a lot. How did you pay for them? I hope you didn't do anything that's against our, you know, our morals. And he kind of tells a maybe white lie and says no, even though, you know, he kind of did some things that were not that great and his mom wouldn't have agreed with. And to me, that was like, he's protecting them and values their morals and values all of that. So I think you're right. He does really respect that. But so to tell you a little bit more about the, you know, how this is made and what sort of reflects that is that the guy who plays the mature Maximo, Eugenio Derbez, also is executive producer. And One thing he said was, I was tired of watching a series that were always about violence. Lately, everything is about killing, kidnapping, or murders. And I was like, what happened to those series in the 80s, like The Love Boat and Cheers, series that I watched with my family? I wanted to do something that felt good, and that's why we went back to the 80s. But he also mentioned how like, the way Latino people, especially men, are portrayed in the media is generally like gangsters and things like that. And he's like, at best, you could be a gardener. And so he wanted to show people that like, that's not all that 
Latino people are. But there are some funny parts where you definitely see like the script kind of flips. One being where Maximo ends up having a white butler and he makes this joke that like, I even had him do a 23 and me test and he's full white. And so oh I, I was like, yes, it feels so funny and just like flipping the script a bit on what we generally see. And so he wanted to get away from Latino stereotypes and portray Mexico in a positive light. Um, he was inspired by the 2017 movie, which also stars the same actor called How to Be a Latin Lover, um, which is about an aging gigolo whose wife leaves him after decades of marriage. But he wanted it to be more of like a heartwarming story instead of like about a, an older man who is like relearning how to seduce women, something like that. And so that's how this sort of came about. It's funny. It's, you know, we talk a lot about nostalgia and virtually every episode, it feels like because there's so much nostalgia in television now to harken back to those times, you know, like the love boat and the cheers and these sort of series that that generation of people grew up watching and going back to the eighties and feeling what the eighties is like and, and all that stuff. And it's just a simpler time. It is a simpler time in the world to tell a story where everybody does no cell phones, right? Where all of the world's information is not at your fingertips, where, you know, you have to go and explore and do those things. And I think that that's why a lot of these creators head back to that time because it is nostalgic, but it's also like a little easier to tell a story in the 80s than it is to tell a story in like 2023. Yeah, I totally agree. And one of the pieces of the show that I loved was the music. It's you know, they have all this like 80s music, really ridiculous songs that we all know because like we grew up, well, we, I guess my generation, we know because we grew up with them. And then adding the fact that they translate most of them and they sing them in Spanish. And it's just, it just sounds so ridiculous. And they have like these dancers like in the middle of the pool dancing to them and there's a lot of stories that could be very traumatic and it just makes it lighter with the music and the, you know, the silliness of it. So, you know, yeah, going back to, you know, all the shows about violence and things like that, this is a, a much lighter show for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think another thing that the reason why they're able to do that in the same way that, you know, How I Met Your Mother and these sort of things is like when you're telling a story where the entire thing is flashbacks, especially if you can do it really creatively like they're doing it here, where it's, you know, you have that faulty narrator who is embellishing things, that there's a built-in story there that we want to know. And that's what I think, like, to me separates like this show from a show like I don't know, like Meet the Goldbergs or whatever or something like that, where it's like similar thing you know, more of a sitcom, but like set in the 80s. Not that we need to compare the two, but just like this show has that thrust of like, how did he make it? How did he get from this point? And like, that part is just really compelling to me. And I think that that's like my biggest takeaway from a marketing perspective for this. You know, something that we did when we created the Hacker Chronicles, the podcast that we made, the Cybercrime podcast, we're like, hacking is like, pretty cool, but also extremely boring. <laughs> so we're like, how do we start like the origins of a hacker who's just going to be typing on a computer a lot with something interesting and like starting at the end of the story and then, you know, layering in a plot device. So we have to figure out how she gets that obviously very common storytelling technique. But I think that this show uses that so well. And it's just something that we don't necessarily do all the time in our B2B marketing is like give a glimpse of the future first whether it's a customer video or whether it's whatever, you know, a lot of times we'll say like 10x ROI, here's your case study. But if we get the story element at the beginning part of it, 
using flashbacks, you can tell something that's gripping from the sort of moment you dig into it. Yeah, and sometimes I think we get too hung up on what's the pain that the customer is feeling? What's the problem versus like, hey, let's paint a picture of what the end state could look like for them and then walk them through like, this is how you get there, which is what this show does, right? Like, hey, I'm this billionaire, but I started with this, you know, like very poor situation in my home country. That's sort of like a similar way you could tell a story with marketing. Like, hey, Mr. Customer, here's what, you know, your life could look like in your, you know, in your job, if you let me walk you through this story with, you know, our solution, our product, whatever it is. Another thing that I just noticed, you know, I just watched the movie Coco the other day as well. Uh, and I just went to Mexico for a wedding. Oh, so nice. I've very been, been spending a lot of time with uh, Mexican culture lately. And it's just so beautiful. And the colors and everything is so stunning. And it's just a very beautiful, vivid landscape. And I think that that's another thing that I would just like would be a, a takeaway for B2B marketing is like choose a landscape that is beautiful and stunning and interesting. And like if you were to tell the same story in Finland, you know, for example, in the winter, it would feel extremely different than telling the story in Acapulco in the 80s. And I think that that's like another piece that we often don't think of setting when we do our, our marketing stories, because it's like, it's an office and it's whatever. But I think that like, the show is called Acapulco. It is about that. Obviously, it's about this boy or this man and his story. But setting is so important and we don't think about it enough in B2B marketing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and especially now, I feel like with, you know, going back to in-person events or, you know, even like with podcasts or with, you know, all these quote-unquote experiences that we're trying to create for our audience and our customers. You're totally right. The, the setting and how you present that experience or that piece of content is super important. And it can really change the entire story, right? Like you're saying, if you set it up in Finland, it, it's not going to look the same as it, as it does in Mexico with like the weather and the colors and the music and the beautiful landscape. Okay. What other uh, B2B marketing lessons from Acapulco? Any, anything else that we can think of here, Christina? I think the the main thing I was taking out of it, especially for this year and how, you know, all of us marketers are trying to do, quote unquote, more with less. I hate that phrase and I don't like that we have to do it, but we do, right? Like budgets are getting cut, teams are getting cut, everything is sort of like go back to basics and, you know, remove the noise. And I think that's really what these two kids do in the show, Maximo and Memo. Like they're just doing whatever they can to like make their life a little bit better and a little bit easier. Whatever roadblocks they have, whatever challenges, right? They turn it around to be a, a positive experience or, you know, at least a good experience for themselves and for their customers and guests. And I think that that's really what I was, you know, taking away from this show. Like, hey, this is what it is. You know, the economy is what it is. It's all out of our control. We, we can't really control the budget cuts, the team cuts. What we can control is what we have and what we can make out of it, right? And how we can make it a good experience for our customers, for our guests, for, you know, the audience that we're serving. So that's really, you know, the main parallel I was drawing from that. I also think it's interesting that, you know, you get these young kids, which is always fun to follow that type of storytelling, but also the adult perspective of it. So you're kind of hitting different quadrants. And it's something that I always think about with B2B marketing is like, what are the quadrants that you're hitting? Are you hitting the C-level and the user level at the same time? Is it a story for both? Is it a story that both people can glean things from? I don't know if you would say that this is a four-quadrant film per se or a four-quadrant show, 
But like it kind of is, right? I would say like, you know, if you were saying like male under 25, male over 25, female under 25, female over 25, like I'd say it's pretty close to that. And I think that for a lot of B2B stuff, if you were to say like our quadrants are probably more like persona based, you know, basically the four quadrant is essentially being like family friendly and like the four quadrant film for, you know, for B2B is sort of like, you know, ICP persona buying committee friendly. Yeah, I love that. And I I think there's also other characters in the show that fall into those different quadrants, right? Like there's the manager of the whole resort who's this like older lady and she's living her own, you know, adventure and life in Mexico. And then there's Maximo's mom who has her own, you know, life and challenges and things, you know, getting a little bit older. And like we mentioned before with her eyesight and things like that. So I think like, yeah, like you're saying, there's a lot of different you know, generations and, you know, it, it can resonate with a lot of different people because there's so many different stories in it, but they all work together and they all go together very well. And yeah, I think that that's, you know, similar to how we try to do things in B2B, like, hey, I had to talk to the C-level, but also the user. And how do I, you know, have a thread going around everyone that, you know, ties everything back together? Yeah, I mean, you compare this to like Ted Lasso, for example, where Ted Lasso, is de- you would definitely say it's a family film. You could watch it in a way because it's very wholesome. And there's young-ish people, but there's not young people in the same way that this show has young people. And I think that, you know, like if I was to sit down and watch this with my 12-year-old nephew, he would be much more engaged in watching this than like Ted Lasso, for example, because you have someone that's like more his age. You know, it's still, I think, rated 14, TV 14, you know, it's still like 14 plus content. And that's the thing, you know, with the B2B stuff where getting that end user and getting that C-level engaged in a single piece of content is extremely hard. (laughs) But if you can do it and if you keep them laughing and if it's visually stimulating enough and if it has a strong enough story hook, you can do it. And that's pretty rare. Great. Okay. Switching gears to you and Riverbed and marketing. How do you think about your marketing strategy at Riverbed and how content plays a role? Yeah. So content is definitely, you know, main to everything that we do. And it's underneath every single campaign and everything. At Riverbed, we always have three or four themes that we're developing throughout the year. And so our content strategy maps back to those themes. So, you know, all the campaigns, all the tactics, the channels, everything maps back to the themes so that we are constantly developing those stories that are, you know, we think our customers and our audience are interested in. So that's how we develop content. And then, you know, the format of the content depends on, you know, what is the campaign? What channels are we going to go with? And so that dictates, you know, what format it is and how we develop the content. Yeah. And would you say sort of, you know, thinking in terms of like those personas and the different sort of people there, how do you think about crafting for the buying committee? Who's the buying committee for Riverbed? And how do you think about it? Our product is for IT professionals. So it's, you know, anyone under the CIO. But like you said, you know, the CIO is one person and then the user of the software is a very different person. So we have a few different buyer personas, a few different functions within the IT team. And we do try to serve both levels, right? The, the C-level, more business level, and um, the user technical folks. Um, so there's, you know, for example, we have recently produced a survey where we went and, you know, asked a lot of different CIOs across a lot of different companies, you know, about a few things. So that's more C-level content versus, you know, if we put together a solution brief or something, you know, more demo-like, that's definitely more for a technical persona. 
But like you, we were discussing before, right? You have to have something that goes across everything and that brings everything back together because in the end, the buying decision is made as a committee and all of those different folks are going to have an opinion. Y'all are doing a lot of multi-channel campaigns, doing a lot of different things, whether it's field, events, digital content, all of that stuff. And you think a lot about ROI. How do you think about delivering outsized ROI with that? Uh, obviously, everybody's sort of you know trying to be lean and mean now, but at the same time, you know you have to make investments that can get those high ROI numbers. Yeah, absolutely. And we look at ROI from a campaign perspective. So you know each campaign we capture what is the content that we're going to serve, what are the channels? Like you said, you know most of them are multi-channel, so we have a few different channels for each campaign, and then we know how much we spend on each campaign, and then what that campaign produces in terms of meetings, opportunities, revenue. And that's how we really know the ROI. So for content, we don't look at, you know, each piece of content individually. It's more at at a campaign level or a theme level, like, okay, this theme is working well. We are getting good ROI from it. You know, we can invest more and we can continue to develop it versus, you know, there might be messages that just don't resonate or, you know, Mm. that we thought were going to be good. And if it's not resonating, then that's when we know we need to pivot. Is there a specific campaign that you've run, you know, over the last year or so that worked really well? Yeah, our best campaign in the last couple of years has been our roadshow. So we started last year with a roadshow, which is, you know, one day we do a, a bunch of different cities globally and it's an entire day of sessions and, you know, it's all content based. So a, a very packed agenda of sessions, demos, hands up labs, round tables, discussions, you know, a lot of things like that. So we get you know, a ton of customers in one room and get them to talk to each other, which is usually the best experience for them. And uh, yeah, those work really, really well, especially now, you know, post-pandemic people really want to be together and just discuss and hear what others like their peers are doing. So that is one campaign that always works really well for us. We do get a lot of conversations out of it. And then, you know, it's just so much easier to follow up with someone that you just had lunch with than, you know, just trying to go cold calling everyone. Yeah, totally. Do you like brand that in any way? Like, how do you think of like when you go on that roadshow? Yeah, so it's called Empowered X, X for experience, because we do digital experience. So it's Empowered X because it's all about empowering our customers to deliver a better digital experience for their employees. So yeah, we started it last year. It's been now, you know, two years in a row. We do about five, six, seven cities each year. And yeah, and it works really, really well. How do you choose those cities? It's usually based on, you know, our sales coverage and where we have our biggest accounts or the biggest concentration of accounts. But that being said, you know, some cities just haven't worked in the past. And we, you know, if one city doesn't work, then we reevaluate for the next year and we decide, you know, like, is it worth it? Then trying it again, or is it just not worth it? So yeah, there's a couple of cities, you know, New York, London, a couple of cities that we always do, but then there's a couple others that kind of change every year. Yeah, very cool. Like how involved is sales in that process? Like are there sales reps on the ground everywhere? Are there certain parts of the event that are not sales focused? You know, yeah, how do you do that? Yeah, they're super, super involved. I have to say they also love it. They love the event. They love, you know, getting their customers there, which is really great because it helps with that sales and marketing alignment that we're always talking about. Sales is usually responsible for bringing the customers to the event because obviously, Mm. you know, they have the relationship with the customer. 
And, you know, a customer is going to say yes, you know, 10 times faster to someone they know, like the salesperson than to me who they don't know. So usually, you know, the sellers are inviting customers and bringing them to the event. And then us on the marketing side, we're developing the content, the agenda. We work with the product team to have demos ready for that day. Anything on the product that we want to show on that day, we're working with the customer success team and the product team on it. It's really like across the company, everybody has a role. (laughs) Yeah. And then the content that comes out of that and those sort of things, are you doing things to have that live on after that? Or are you taking like ideas from that and doing it for future events? How do you think about, you know, crafting the actual content for the event and, and where it goes afterwards? Yeah, there's a couple of things that we do afterwards. There's some sessions that we record and then, you know, we use them and we have them on our website, we host them and, you know, the other folks can watch them later and it's good content to just have. And then there's also when we're, you know, having roundtable conversations and things like that with customers, we usually, you know, take any learnings that we hear from the roundtable or, you know, any stats or any, you know, anecdotes that customers talk about. And we then put all of that together. And so that also drives more content, right? We say like, hey, there was a great conversation about this, this and this. We could write, you know, a blog post on that or we could do a video with this customer on that. So it really sparks a lot of other ideas to create more content and better content after the event. Very cool. Yeah. Any other thoughts on sort of like pitching leadership on the ROI of content or, or like things like a branded event series or, or anything like that? I would say the main thing is you have to educate your senior leadership on how a content mix and a marketing mix works. It's not, you know, piece by piece and you're not going to be able to see revenue from one webinar. It's really all about, you know, what is that content mix that you need to really show ROI? So I've seen, you know, leaders ask before, oh, we did this webinar. What did it bring? Well, one webinar in isolation doesn't bring anything, right? Like it's all a mix. So as marketers, I think we need to be very clear setting expectations in terms of like, hey, it's the same with the roadshow, right? It works really well because we bring folks that are already familiar with us, that want to spend a day with us, that are, you know, warm. It wouldn't work well if I'm trying to bring in, you know, people who don't know about us, right? So you really have to know, like, who is that content for? How -hmm. are we going to serve it? And then, you know, evaluate it in that sense and not just, you know, piece by piece in isolation without really any other context. That's really helpful. One of the things, I love the Roadshow idea. I love how that you have, like, a brand for it. I mean, I think that... We've seen a lot of companies do a branded event series, do a content series, you know, like a podcast or a video series, like that's basically in conjunction with it and having sort of this like branded series sort of as if you were to take sort of, you know, your user conference and stretch it out over the course of a year, go to have in-person, have digital, you know, all that stuff be a really effective thing. And I think part of the reason is because you can subscribe to it because you know, like, hey, if they're coming to your city, there's a tether to like watching, you know, stuff whenever you want. But the on-demand piece, do you think it just makes it easier for people to like, just like click into it and like understand like, oh, I know what this is. I know what it's going to be. Are they going to come to my city? And I went to the one last year and like, I want to do this again. Like, I'm curious, is it just you know, rather than doing just a bunch of one-off stuff, which kind of just doesn't seem fully connected. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do think that people learn the brand and they learn, like you're saying, right, that what was the content last year? Oh, I, I actually want to go this year. We've actually had a lot of conversations internally about what is EmpoweredX and what is not EmpoweredX, right? Because mm. then we suddenly had, 
the sellers say, oh, I'm going to have a dinner. I'm going to call it Empowered X. Right. Whatever, right. And we're like, no, you can't because then you're diluting the brand. You know, like we need to keep that brand as if it's a brand, which is what it is, right? And so you can then go and just call anything Empowered X, right? Empowered X is a roadshow. It's a very specific day and a very specific agenda and content and audience. And it's not for anyone to just use it in any way, because then, like you're saying, people are not going to recognize it and people are not going to know what it is. I love that. That is great advice. Any other thoughts on sort of like, you know, strategy and things that you're doing or other campaigns or things that are that are working well? The only thing I would say is going back to the do more with less is don't try to boil the ocean. Content is, you know, it, it's very easy to try to do all the things your customers are talking about, right? Like I just heard a customer ask this question, let's do a webinar on this. Or I, I just, you know, somebody just asked this other thing, let's do an ebook on that, right? That's why we do our themes. And I think it's important. And each theme can be, you know, a lot of different topics, but it all has to talk to one theme or, or you know, one specific either use case or problem that you're trying to solve for your customers. Because I, I do think that content can get very complicated and it can get into a very like one-off type of thing that is not really a strategy, right? A strategy has a plan and, a, and an intentionality that you have to have so that your content actually does have meaning. And you can actually see that ROI that we were talking about before, right? Because one-off things are not going to give you the ROI that you need. Yeah, I could not agree more. The random acts of content marketing is brutal. Okay, anything that you have coming up that you're excited about, whether it's content or, or events or campaigns or anything? Yeah, so I'm really excited about next year. We're already starting to plan, obviously. And we are taking a much more ABM approach next year, which is exciting. It's exciting from an organization perspective, but also from a content perspective, because we're going to start honing into a few verticals a lot more, a few industries. So that is going to mean, you know, a lot more specific with our use cases and our content. So yeah, excited about that. Hoping, you know, next year things pick up a little bit more than this year. And yeah, just looking forward to it. Amazing. Christina, it's been absolutely wonderful having you on the show today, chatting Acapulco and, and Riverbed and all of that. Any final thoughts or anything to plug, whether it's on the show or, or stuff coming up at Riverbed or anything? No, thank you so much for having me. It's been great. And if folks have questions, find me on LinkedIn, Christina Daroka. Awesome. And we'll link that up in the show notes. Thanks again and take care. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. I hope you got some good ideas for your B2B content. Thank you for listening to Remarkable. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. Remarkable is created by the team at Caspian Studios, B2B podcast as a service. Caspian also creates fiction series for B2B companies. So if you want a business thriller, you can learn more at caspianstudios.com. Hollywood style storytelling for B2B. And in today's episode, you heard from myself, Ian Faison, and Meredith O'Neill, senior producer here at Caspian Studios. Remarkable was produced this week by Meredith O'Neill, mixed by Scott Goodrich, and our theme song is Solomon by Falak. Be remarkable and rise above the noise. <laughs>